Um, Neil, oh, thanks very much for doing the interview. Tenth uh, of November, two thousand four. Uh, interviewed by Derek Hockaday. Uh, Neil Mortensen. Um, now, I guess you came from Bristol. Yeah, I was a senior lecturer in Bristol, and Emmanuel Lee died. I remember sitting in my house in Clifton, and Mike Kettlewell rang and said, would you be interested? And one thing and another, and in fact the appointment, didn't, I don't think happened, Emmanuel died in February, I think, and uh, the appointment didn't actually happen until May, June time. Mm -hmm. And I actually started in late 1986, mm -hmm. about uh, November time, I think, yeah. Why did you want to move from Bristol? Why did you decide to move? Um, well, I was a senior lecturer, and in those days, people made you quite uh, aware of the idea that a senior lectureship wasn't forever. Right. And I'd seen other people kind of become stalled or low-flying yeah. or yeah. a bit disgruntled because they didn't get the right spot. Actually, interestingly, as it happened, um, when I got the job, Partly because, I mean, I was very interested in, obviously, the, the gastroenterology, GI surgery stuff. And, obviously, Sydney had been on the staff, and then Derek Jordan. I used to come as a registrar, uh, before this was even a kind of twinkling in everybody's eye, as it were, to the gastroenterology course. I always liked medical gastroenterology and the whole theory of how... GI diseases happen. Yeah. So. And would you come annually? Or? So I, 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 I didn't come every single day, but I came quite a lot. Yeah. So I quite liked it from that point of view. And I, I obviously knew Mike Kettlewell very good, very well from sort of surgical circles. So it was very attractive. And you know these these jobs in in uh, big teaching hospitals like this don't come up every every day. Mm -hmm. And it's flattering to be asked too. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so just to digress slightly, Robin Williamson, who was a professor in Bristol, then immediately. Um, took the job at the Hammersmith and then um, I was at sixes and sevens and actually my cattle was very understanding and I said well look can I just stick around and see if I can have a go at Bristol mm -hmm. and um, anyway cut a long story short two, hour, two, two years went by and they appointed somebody else so I stayed mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, how big and sort of name was Sydney in those days Oh, he was uh, a sort of towering figure in gastroenterology. He was the person who put the management of colitis on the map. He set up the idea of five days, and if the patient isn't getting better, think about surgery. So, um, in you, if you like, he was the surgeon-friendly physician in gastroenterology. Right. He was the one who said to his colleagues... If it's not getting better by now, then you, right. you do need a surgeon. I mean, that's very interesting. I'd have sort of imagined that the steroid treatment would have reduced the amount of surgery. Well, it did, but it's interesting. You know, still to this day, we're talking about 2014, mm -hmm. if you come in with an acute severe attack of ulcerative colitis, mm -hmm. um, one third of those patients will end up there and then having their colon removed, even mm -hmm. with the new iterations of treatment after steroids, which are these biologics and so on. Mm -hmm. Did you do any general surgery when you came? Oh yes, I mean how it's changed, yes. <laughs> unbelievably. I mean obviously I, so just got, if just spinning back to mm. Bristol, so I had a, a general surgical uh, training but I, I emphasised GI disease and in fact I had done a six month attachment at St Mark's Hospital in London, mm -hmm. sort of giving me sort of lower GI credentials. And uh, when I arrived, I think two or three things um, to reflect on. Number one, um, Mike Kettlewell and I really did most of the major luminal gastroenterology surgery. So we would take out esophaguses, we would do portal cable shunts for um, portal hypertension, we would do the colitis and the Crohn's disease for what was now Derek, uh, having succeeded Sydney. And uh, obviously there were sort of plenty of colon cancers around and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the other thing that struck me was that the uh, surgical firms were arranged for the benefit of the undergraduates completely. Uh, there was no, if you like, interest in trying to concentrate expertise to make the patients have a better outcome. It was all about... Um, undergraduate mm -hmm. teaching. So I was on a service with Joe Smith, urology, 
and Nick Dudley who did paediatrics and adults and yeah the students saw a fantastic range of stuff um, but I felt in my bones uh, that the future had to be increasing specialization and little by little I wore everybody down I can remember there was a meeting at Oriel College where I think Nick Dudley was a was a, a member of the senior common room and we had dinner and then we sat around and chatted and I sort of flew the flag for specialization this was about must have been about four or five years, six years after I arrived, and there was tremendous hostility to start with. Mm -hmm. Everybody said, oh, well, you know, what about our, you know, teaching of the undergraduates and all that stuff? Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the writing was on the wall, I yeah, think. Yeah. So when you came, did you go to the Churchill? Because Joe was at the Churchill. Yeah, no, no, no. So we had, we had a ward uh, at the John Ratcliffe, uh, and obviously sort of emergencies went there, and I think I had, I think I had... I tell you what I had, and this is typical new boy stuff. I had all day Friday <laughs> at the John Ratcliffe, and I had Thursday afternoons at the Churchill, all loaded on to the end of the week, which, when I was travelling backwards and forwards for the year or so, was actually quite tough. Yeah. Hey-ho, that's the yeah. way it goes. I mean, I sorted it out eventually. Yeah. So we had beds on both sides, really. We did the smaller stuff at the Churchill. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when did you get the specialisation introduced? Um, roughly. Roughly. Um, about um, sort of 95, 96, yeah. I think. We began to... So Mike Kettlewell and I were then on a, on a firm together and there was tacit agreement from the other college colleagues that we were going to subspecialize. So Julian Britton did hepatobiliary. Um, Mike still did esophagus. I stopped doing esophagus because there was plenty of the rest of it to do. Um, Mike Greenall by then, had, he was still doing a bit of general surgery, but was kind of swamped with breast yes. disease. Mm. And so uh, that's the way it went. I think Nick Dudley carried on doing some endocrine stuff and the odd adult general, but uh, had lots of pediatric stuff to do as well. So, I think by then, uh, people recognised that we had to have specialisation. And interestingly, even before that, and this was true of Sydney too, the gastroenterologists were very, um, if you like, uh, careful who they asked to do their bad IBD cases, because there were some really bad ones. I mean, it was yeah. a national referral centre. And, you know, even if somebody else was on call... You know, they'd ring Mike or I up and say, look, you know, this patient's really... I, I, we would, we'd be grateful if you take a personal interest and do this yourself. So that there was already specialisation mm -hmm. for that aspect of yes. the work in a funny sort of way before it became obviously agreed. And do you think it had an effect on undergraduate teaching and clinical student teaching? Um, well, it's interesting, of course. Um, I've just come off... Uh, being chairman of examiners and I've seen what's happened to the changes in the undergraduate curriculum. Now of course um, they spend only as part of their first year in clinical medicine only two or three weeks with us in GI surgery. Mm -hmm. um, there's tremendous demand for lots and lots of other subject areas and so on um, but they do get sort of two or three weeks with us and that's nothing else. So they get a sort of concentrated exposure, which I, I suppose it's ensured that they do. But the whole sense of being part of a team, mm -hmm. uh, being accepted as part of the team and part of the furniture, if you like, and even being accepted to a degree socially, and the, and the element of, of pastoral care that went with that from mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. has now completely disappeared. Yes. And of course, the pastoral care element is now either provided by their college tutors or by um, Tim Lancaster and the, you know, the medical school office. So the college tutor would mostly be a, 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 medic, a medic attached to one of the colleges? Um, well, I mean, obviously there are college tutors, who both preclinical and clinical. Um, and I think, I think the students now see their college and the provision by their college and Tim Lancaster as their kind of their home, they kind of just visit mm. us. Whereas yeah. in the past, they were actually part of our team and we got to know them quite well. Mm. And of course, uh, you were able to say, and the bright ones were able to say to us, can I please do one of the house jobs here? Mm. Now that's all completely disappeared yeah. with natural ma <laughs> matching schemes. And 
I mean, now we're getting, as part of the national scene, we get people who've never ever worked in Oxford ever before, mm. and they're passing ships in the night. We get them for two months at a time. Right. And with that? their kind of night commitment and shifting and so on, you've just about got to know their name mm. before they shove mm. off and go mm. somewhere else. And again, the pastoral care element and the sense of being part of a team is much more different. I feel very sorry for them. Yes, but I also felt that you don't know what they've been taught. If somebody comes from Oxford, you may know that they're going to be weak on X. Yeah. But if they come from somewhere else, you don't know what no, they could have. Absolutely or not. no idea. I mean, having said that, although it is it does seem to be sort of a throw of the dice or potluck, certainly in the last year we've had some very good, very good people. Good. This must be on a matching scheme of. Yes, yeah, a national patching, yes. matching. Yes. So if you're scheme, choosing good guys in Oxford yeah. and they're choosing yeah. you, there's a yeah. there's hope because the Americans used to do this and get it. Their knickers in a terrible yeah. twist about yeah. it every year. Well, yeah. I mean, at one time we got incensed because I can remember um, about five years before I finished as chairman of the examiners, one of the people who won the top prize. Surgical prize. No, it's top yeah. medical right. prize. Mm -hmm. um, was, I mean, we, you know, we remember her being examined absolutely outstanding, couldn't couldn't because of the matching scene get a house job in, in Oxford. I mean, it was terrible. It's stupid. <laughs> um, the physical signs, I suppose, have receded with imaging. I mean, how important are the old physical signs? I think really, really good doctors listen, mm -hmm. take a very good history and yeah. carefully examine the patient. And that's still the case. But um, if you take, for example, the generality of emergency surgical take um, being able to say without a doubt that patient has acute diverticulitis mm -hmm. makes a big difference to the speed with which you're able to manage them discharge them most importantly mm -hmm. these days with the huge volumes coming through and then decide on strategy there isn't that they've come in with non-specific abdominal pain quite so much as there was in the past mm -hmm. um, so I think imaging has made a fantastic difference and Parche, what I've said about listening and taking good history and so on, since so much else of what we do has been industrialised, in a sense, I think personally that every person coming in with abdominal pain should have some kind of either a CT scan or in the future maybe some kind of non-irradiation based mm -hmm. imaging, mm -hmm. just as part of their <coughs> walk through the door. And then you know exactly what's going on to a degree and you can set up a proper treatment strategy and so on. I think it's, uh, it's revolutionised what we do. And I'm, I mean, since you've asked about imaging, um, one of the areas uh, I deal with is rectal cancer and imaging, first of all, uh, endoluminal ultrasound, which I was involved in developing in the UK and now MRI scanning, has completely revolutionized how we manage rectal cancer. Mm. We used to feel, and the finger was supposed to, coming back to physical science, was uh, supposed to tell us how advanced it was by how movable it was. Now with an MRI scan, we can tell exactly how far through the wall the tumor's got, whether the lymph nodes are involved, whether it's out at our dotted line, our normal surgical margin, whether we need to give chemo radiotherapy to shrink it down so we don't get a uh, a, a, a cancer at the margin so it's making a fantastic yeah, no, I bet. Yeah. I now all the support to a surgeon, the nursing how did the nursing compare with Bristol? Um, I thought when I first arrived I thought the nursing here was good, good. Uh, yeah. I mean it does it, it did depend very much on um, the uh, ward sister which obviously went away for a bit and has come back again um, and uh, I, I no no I I think they're equivalent really yes. to be quite honest yeah. yeah. And when you came, I mean, did you have the same ward sister for five years, as it were, or was that already gone? No, I mean, then there was some stability, yes. but um, um, clearly that's now changed, yeah. and people last in the job a year or two before either going off into management or changing tack. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the anaesthetists. Did you have one anaesthetist all through, or have you changed a bit? I've specialised in Knights of the Realm. So mm -hmm. when I was um, in 
Bristol, uh, I had Sir Cedric Priest Roberts, about me, <laughs> who was a professor of anaesthesia there, and then I came here. Yeah. And on Fridays, I had Sir Keith Sykes oh, as my anaesthetist. Right. So, um, and they were they were both good colleagues yeah, and helpful. Yeah. I was still pretty young. I mean, I I became a consultant in Bristol when I was thirty two, mm. and you know, when I arrived here, I was still um, I think I was sort of thirty eight, thirty nine ish, and still had lots to learn. So, mm. you know, especially with the difficult stuff that you know was around to. Mm. Have to, to have to help. Well, the subject's always changing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. let alone whether yeah. you've met it before. And yeah. then who followed Keith Sykes? Then uh, I was very, very fortunate. Um, I had a long standing anaesthetic relationship, as they say, with Dr. Duncan Young, yes, who um, became the head of the ITU. So it was fantastic. So yeah. for our really sick patients, we used to have some what we call train wrecks in Crohn's disease, who'd had multiple surgeries elsewhere, their abdomen was a massive fistula, they were unable to maintain their own nutrition, they were on long-term parental nutrition, they were kind of intestinal cripples and medically train wrecks. And he was absolutely brilliant, and of course he had access to ITU uh, when we needed it. So Mm. I absolutely loved working with him. Uh, so, in the medical director, you'd done some anal rectal physiology. Yeah. What was that on muscle? Or? So, uh, one of the things I did in Bristol, I, uh, before I um, came here, I was interested in gut physiology and I'd done some work on um, temperature and the way in which temperature might affect sensation in the, in the hind gut. Mm-hmm. I'd also developed, uh, um, as I was saying, endoluminal ultrasound in the UK. And then when I arrived here, I found Alison Brading, who mm-hmm. worked in the Department of Pharmacology. Mm-hmm. She was, of course, interested in smooth muscle function in relation to bladder dysfunction. And I said to her, can't we do the same things that you're doing with bladder muscle with gut muscle? And she thought that was a great idea. And I had a succession. I must have had six or seven fellows who worked with her, funded in all kinds of different ways. Um, all of whom did MDs or similar. And um, we, for example, found the first evidence that nitric oxide was a neurotransmitter for the anal sphincter, which led to, uh, I mean, up until then, if you were trying to change something around the tail end, you could put a bit of anaesthetic on, you could put a bit of kind of soothing lotion on Mm -hmm. but actually to do something pharmacologically to it you couldn't and after the discovery of nitric oxide as a neurotransmitter there have now been a whole range of of drugs so nitric oxide donors glycerol trinitrate derived uh, calcium channel blockers and even botulinum toxin all of which we, we showed experimentally worked in in the in the sort of pharmacological um, water bath experiments right. before it was then applied or used in humans. Right. And then the thing that always I thought was remarkable, if you stimulate it enough, it becomes voluntary. Smooth muscle turns into a voluntary muscle. Or is that quite wrong? I think, I think some of its characteristics change, but it doesn't change completely. No, right. yeah. Yeah. And actually, interestingly, as far as, again, the tail end is concerned, Everybody thought that botulinum toxin only affected striated muscle. Well, we were were able to show that it affects uh, smooth muscle. And then the intraluminal ultrasound. I mean, you started it in Bristol. Did you do more in Oxford? Well, I still had a research fellow going, Mm -hmm. and I did it for a little bit longer. Um, And uh, there were basically, there were two uses for it. One is you could look at the anal sphincter and look at, sphincter tears which we weren't able to do before that so you could look at a woman who'd had a bad obstetric injury and do an ultraluminal an intraluminal anal ultrasound scan and show the break in the muscle I mean that was a revolution and then you could put the thing in the rectum and actually look at the tumor and see how far through the bowel wall it had got so for about sort of five to ten years that became one of the ways of, of looking at rectal tumours, but it's been su- superseded now by, by MRI yes, scanning. No, indeed. Mm. And um, over the years, I mean, have results got demonstrably better? 
I imagine patients do do better now. Yes. Um, uh, well, if, if we look at IBD, for example, I think we've learned when to operate and when not to operate mm-hmm. in Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. Timing is everything. Um, the big development in my professional lifetime for the colitis population has been up until uh, around the mid-70s, there was only the Brian Brook uh, everted spouted ileostomy. Mm-hmm. And then along came a temporary uh, continent ileostomy, which uh, didn't last very long. But then the, the thing that really made the huge difference was an ileoanal pouch. So all these young mm-hmm. people could be joined together and not have a permanent ileostomy. Right. We used ileum as a kind of neo-rectum. Right. And if you look at the results of those patients, you know, certainly over sort of 25 years, we got better and better at doing it. But interestingly, and um, this is, I think, one of our problems at the beginning of um, sort of 2010 onwards, is as the operation gets diffused out into the generality of surgery, mm-hmm. people do smaller volumes. I mean, there's been a recent uh, British Society of Gastroenterology survey and our Association of Coloproctology, which incidentally is only now sort of 18 years old. So the specialty of colorectal surgery in the UK has only had a society for 18 years or so. Um, Those operations are done in uh, small hospitals on average three times a year, which is obviously completely unacceptable. And one of the things we now see, a kind of generational shift. So I started doing the brand new patients and we still do lots of those and we got better and better at it and the complications have gone down but now we're seeing a kind of new business coming our way which is the redos of the ones done else which haven't quite worked out and need kind of some tuning or even complete reconstruction. The Association of Colorectal Surgeons, you'd have been Secretary President, what were you? Yeah, I I kind of did everything so I was one of the founding members, Uh, I started its research foundation um, and I was uh, the treasurer and, and uh, eventually president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where would they meet generally? In London? or? Um, well it became quite big so in the end there was only Harrogate and um, Birmingham and Liverpool with its new conference centre were the sort of ones that were big enough and Manchester as well. Mm -hmm. London was always difficult because it was so expensive so we usually met outside London. When I was president actually because we we are an association of Great Britain and Ireland we had the meeting at that very nice conference centre in Edinburgh Mm. which was excellent. Yes Mm. Um, and with the colon, colon cancers, do you think diet is important? Yes, I mean all the. I mean, in my my lecture, the students, you know, there's a good correlation between red meat intake mm. and the incidence of colorectal cancer. Um, but I think that it's it's interesting looking at that as a whole issue. Um, I think people trying to change their diet doesn't seem to have made any difference to the incidence as we see it. The big difference in our business has been the uh, introduction of a, of a national bowel cancer screening program. Mm-hmm. So at the age of 60, people are invited to do occult blood tests, and if they're positive, they get a colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. So we have this tranche of fit 60-year-olds with very small tumours who have a keyhole operation, and they're out of hospital in three or four days, mm-hmm. and they're not there at the weekend. It's absolutely amazing how it's changed. Whereas in the past, we were relying on symptoms, and those mid to late 60-year-olds would, on the whole, be not quite so fit, and they would have a big tumour, much bigger operation to get yeah. through, much more complications and yeah. problems and difficulties. And you can rely upon the small tumours to be occult blood positive, can you? No, I mean, can obviously, you, some, yes. some will escape, but the patients are repeatedly right. tested, so right. they get another test after yeah. two years, so they get another right. kind of chance. Very good. Yeah. With the research people, you know, the, the doctorates, were they doing clinical practice at the same time? Would they do sort of, you know, a year's work, a third of their work in clinical? Much less than that. No, right. we tried to, I mean, I felt very strongly we had to protect them. So they would do a clinical week and then they'd come to our weekly seminar. They'd obviously give a talk. 
uh, they'd be academically stimulated, but clinic they didn't do call or they didn't do ordinary ward work. Oh, or very good, like that. very good, to achieve that I think, because yeah. it's difficult. That it is very difficult. Yes. So, how has the junior staff been changed during the year over the years? I mean, have you noticed the change? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I think the first thing to say is obviously I um, got on the staff in Bristol on the academic side. And that was fortunate because you could get on at a younger age. Mm -hmm. I was with a cadre of senior registrars who were all in their late 30s or early 40s. It was a really bad time. Mm -hmm. And these guys were going around to 30, 40, 50 interviews mm -hmm. without getting a job. But on the staff of the hospital, and to a degree as soon as I moved from Bristol to here, there were these guys who were incredibly experienced, who were effectively consultants, mm -hmm. who could do the stuff, they could do the operations, they could do the management, they could do, the, they could do everything really. Um, and then of course, um, times changed, we didn't have senior registrars anymore, the whole thing has been swept away. And it's become more consultant delivered and more, certainly more consultant led. And with the European Working Time Directive, the amount of time that people on our homegrown rotations have before the mast has reduced dramatically. I calculated, even though I got a job at the age of 32, I had worked in an environment where I was on one in two. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a senior registrar job in Exeter. And I can remember at the end of it, I was completely sick of surgery, which for me was very, yeah. very unusual. Yeah. I calculated I'd done 34 to 35,000 hours in training and the guys coming off of schemes now have six or seven thousand wow that's a so huge, huge massive difference yes. and of course they um can narrow their portfolio become more specialized as a way of coping with uh having fewer hours yeah. but in the craft specialties i think there's, there's still no substitute for experience mm -hmm. and it's interesting that um we have a development rather like they have in the United States where people have a kind of broadish general surgical training and then they do a fellowship. And that exactly the same thing has happened in the UK now. Mm -hmm. Partly because the kids don't feel they're ready. And certainly we see, um, working with them across the operating table in the clinics, they're much less uh, experienced, mm -hmm. much less technically composed and capable. Mm -hmm. um, much less ready mm. than you'd kind of like them to be. Yes. I mean, in the old days, most surgeons had done a lot of woodwork and that sort of stuff. Do they still do that? No, but of course that's been replaced by computer games. So the right. next generation... So all our stuff... So um, in 1973, I set up a charity which became a proper charity in 1974... Uh, 19... Let's start again. In 2004... So charity 2003-2004 and it was called Octopus, Oxford Colon Cancer Trust. And one of the things I'd found in Oxford was that you could get um, help, you could get fellows working on things in the lab, mm -hmm. Walter Bodmer and so on I've worked with, um, and there'd be a great deal of interest in why a cancer cell did one thing or another but we still had this disjunct there was kind of world-class cancer biology and we still had pretty rubbish operating theatres and gear mm -hmm. so the idea of this charity was that we would make the leap into keyhole surgery big time and we have really really done that in a big way so that the new generation of surgeons now um, will do everything really on a TV screen. Uh, I mean, some of the big difficult operations we still have to do open, but mm -hmm. it's it's much more keyhole and the skills they have from sort of playing computer games, I guess. And is the image magnified or is it normal size? Like um, size? The image is magnified a bit mm -hmm. and obviously we have high definition screens. Um, an operation I pioneered in the UK um, especially for early rectal cancer is an operation where we put a basically a rather large and eye-wateringly distressing looking tube up the tail end we put in carbon dioxide we have gas sealed ports 
we have a binocular optic and we look on a TV screen and that's five times magnification. Right. And so we're able to cut a disc and sew it up all from the inside as the beginning of the, you know, the, what will be the revolution in endoluminal surgery, I think. Because Julian Britton always used to say they had to learn to peel an orange. Yeah. Is that what you do still? Or? Not so. Yeah. I th- I, the, the, things, the things moved on a lot. So yeah. for the completely new, or if you like, some of the students to some of the completely new surgeons now, there are virtual training programs yeah. where you can sit in a console or sit looking at a screen and you've got sort of virtual things to play with, picking things up, putting them down. I mean, Julian's idea of the uh, uh, peeling an orange inside a box was absolutely brilliant, but it's obviously been superseded by other things. Do you find yourself watching a junior doing an operation? I mean, you're just there in case he gets into trouble or to tell him he's doing the wrong thing. So um, I'm now um, at the either the end or the top stage of my career, mm. however you like to put it. Mm. And I've done lots and lots of things before. So unless it's really very, very complicated or very difficult, I now see my job as helping the surgeons of the future yeah. learn how to do it really well. So I'm always actually scrubbed in. And the thing about the keyhole surgery is that I'm holding the camera. So I can effectively switch it off or turn it away or say <laughs> stop doing that and try and do this and I can actually stop them seeing yes in a way which you can't do in open surgery mm. so that um, keyhole surgery in our business lends itself to breaking down a big operation into a series of modules and so the guys will learn an operation in stages and then they'll build up the modules mm-hmm. until they can do the whole thing and actually although that sounds rather dull uh, in a funny sort of way, I really, really enjoy helping them do it well yeah. and, and love seeing them getting better yes. at it yes. and, and, and seeing them kind of problem solve. Yes. You know, how do you get around a technical problem? Maybe there's a bit of bleeding, maybe you can't see well enough. Maybe the tumour's a bit big and getting in the way. All that stuff, um, I think, I think it's, it's great to see how they manage. And of course, some of our, I was explaining earlier, we've had the change in the experience of our homegrown trained registrars and their European working time directive problems and we've added into that we think some of the best surgical trainees from around Europe who want Mm -hmm. to come to us so we have some outstanding people from all over Europe now probably the in the best sort of top percent of their country's trainees and they come to us and they of course raise the standard of everybody some of them are technically absolutely brilliant and mm-hmm. it's just a joy to help them do the stuff yes, yes. <laughs> how much time do you find yourself outside oxford i mean you must have a lot of national international commitments yeah so i think recently i've um uh decided to do um a bit less international traveling mm-hmm. i think once you've done it you've sort of find that it's not quite as exciting and so on as it used to be Um, I uh, was for a while director of surgery and being away a lot and doing that was very difficult Um, I'm just recently on the council of the college of surgeons so that's taking me up to London a bit more Um, so I guess maybe I'm away a day a week or something Mm -hmm. like that Director of surgery, what does that involve? So, um, that I was actually clinical director of general surgery, vascular surgery, trauma surgery, and gastroenterology. I did it all incredibly badly. I was completely against great big long boring committee meetings yeah. and thought that it should be reduced to the absolute bare minimum. Um, I guess um, somebody had to do it. I... Uh, don't feel uh, any kind of sense of pride about it. I felt that I had the maximum amount of responsibility and the minimum amount of power. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a budget. I couldn't hire and fire. I had to consensus build. If somebody was a problem, if a department was a problem, I had to kind of find a compromise way mm-hmm. around it. And 
I think the other thing is inevitably you make decisions which colleagues don't agree with and you lose friends mm. and I think it's very very difficult to do it well and um, I remember Mike Kettlewell did it for a spell and when he finished uh, I think he said you know I feel really weary and I don't think I've achieved very much mm. at all. How long do you do it for? I did it for five stroke six years. Yeah, so what about the administrators, the lay administrators? Do they come into this? Well, again, I think I was talking to um, uh, one of my medical colleagues on Sunday evening, and I think that two or three things have happened across my practicing lifetime. Number one, the rise of the managerial class mm. in hospitals, and number two, the politicization of healthcare. Mm. And I think those have both made it much more difficult to be a professional. So, um, probably the surgical team delivering the surgery is now dwarfed by all the people around the edges, the people who manage the theatres, the people who manage the waiting list, the people who manage the bookings for the clinic. Um, there seem to be lots and lots of them. Mm. And actually delivering the service, uh, I think unless we had this tranche of um, fellows we've attracted from all over the place, I think it would be very difficult yeah, or impossible yeah. to to uh, sort of keep sane and do a really good job. So um, I don't know whether we will see the trend reversed. At the moment, I see a kind of unstoppable march towards effectively a kind of industrialization of healthcare. Mm -hmm. with getting the maximum for the least cost and grinding out professionalism and variability and opinion mm -hmm. and trying to have everything as uniform as possible. Now, um, politicians will say, well, we don't want centres of excellence, we don't want elites. We want the best possible treatment for everybody, whether they're in <laughs> Milton Keynes or whether they're in Oxford. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is that we put in the structures and processes which make sure that everybody has exactly the same. Now, obviously, at the high end of medicine, um, we find that extremely difficult to agree with, and it's quite painful. Mm. The rise of the administrator. Do you think it happened in my generation, as it were, that we sold the past, or did it happen in your generation? Or how did it happen? I can, I, you know, I can remember Malcolm Gough um, in the bar at the John Ratcliffe when you were allowed to drink on the premises, um, you know, railing against yeah. uh, administration. So I think it's always been there. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it wasn't a huge in 1960. I would say no, but I mean, I mean, yes. it's interesting. Yes. A huge difference is the chief executive of the hospital, of course, now is actually under the cost from the Department of Health. I mean, yeah. at one time, I'm not quite sure about it right now, but at one time, the chief executive of the John Ackley was being phoned every week by the Minister of Health. In that degree of, um, of pressure. Um, and does it make any difference? Does it make what happens any more, you know, any better? Is there any more excellence in terms of health care? You know, it's it's you know, it's difficult to say. I guess the whole standard has gone up anyway. But why? What has it been? Well, there's been investment in healthcare, which there needed to be. Good for the Labour Party and the last government for that. Big increase in investment. Um, but all these other bits around the edges, I'm not. I'm not sure that the rise of the interference from the managerial class has actually made any difference to standards to mm. be quite honest I mean it's been made a bigger bureaucracy things are more difficult to do um, do you think they um, as it were keep patients away from you at times I think quite the reverse I mean we now don't have control over who comes to our clinic somebody right, else does but they're pushing people in rather yeah than absolutely we right. say I can only manage you know <laughs> 20 in an afternoon and you yeah. find there are 40 yeah. because they're under pressure for targets and so on and so on and so on. I mean, it's no... I mean, we're now talking about the middle of November 2014 and next year there's going to be a, a, a general election. Mm -hmm. It is no 
surprise that from the Department of Health comes a directive, there must be not one single patient waiting for surgery more than 18 weeks on the mm. waiting list. Mm. Doesn't matter whether they've got any kind of a clinical priority. So you guys don't matter. You can't choose. Mm. We're going to choose, and we're going to choose it on the basis that they've been waiting that long. Mm. And that is an example of gross political interference, which we've never quite had in this way ever in the mm. past, I don't think. And does anybody do anything about that in the sense of resisting it? I mean, the College of Surgeons, say... Well, now that's a very, very good question. Uh, the College of Surgeons at the moment is in the good books of the government because um, when uh, there were big discussions about um, uh, the, arrange um, the relationship between the government and the profession about two and a half, three years ago, um, the GPs and a number of other colleges said, that they wouldn't uh, cooperate, but the College of Surgeons decided that they would do what they could to help. Mm -hmm. And I personally think we've been a bit compromised, to be quite mm -hmm. honest, although it's been good because we've got the ear of government and they like us going in and out of the Department of Health in a way in which that's never ever happened before. Mm -hmm. There's been a price to pay, which is that I think we've been compromised a bit. Yeah. Just to go back for a minute, the um, <clears throat> big operations, really big operations, say five modules, how long would that take? Um, well, uh, a very low rectal cancer in a male done by keyhole will take four or five hours. Some of our Crohn's disease patients with um, a real abdominal mashup, even done open, will be five or six Gosh, hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, then I was thinking, did you think the anaesthetists at any time, you were saying that the administrators and the people on the periphery doing the booking, did the, did the anaesthetists ever limit the amount of surgery you could do? Because there was one time they sort of knocked off at five o'clock. Well, I mean, um, there, was a very, there was also a very fierce uh, theatre sister at the John Ratcliffe right. who, you know, at about 2.30 three o'clock would put a head round the door and say Mort you've got to be finished in half an hour and it was um, it was it was difficult because you had an obligation to somebody who was very ill you felt mm. needed to be done and when were you going to get it done if you didn't get it done that day so it was less it was less the anaesthetist to be quite honest I mean both uh, Keith Sykes and Dunkian were very understanding about the complexity oh, of the yeah, cases sure they and they were. would understand that you couldn't always predict how long it would take and they'd mm. stick around for as long as it did take and interestingly in our new um, wards and theatres at the Churchill Hospital where we now do our elective surgery having previously been at the John Ratcliffe um, we now have what we call three session lists so previously a day would you know, maybe go from sort of nine o'clock till five thirty ish and you could carry on if you uh, if you if you needed to in special circumstances. Now um listen to this for a change. I arrive at about seven twenty mm -hmm. and I consent the houseman can't do it anymore. I consent the patients for the list that day. Mm. We have to meet at ten past eight for a WHO check on all the cases we're going to do on the day. Have we all introduced ourselves? What kit will we need? And then the list starts at 8.30, usually pretty promptly, to be fair, and we can carry on till 7.30, 8 mm. in the evening, mm. and we quite frequently do. And you're tired. <laughs> you need a good drink after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, gosh, oh, I know, the post-operative care... I mean, have you been heavily involved in that all through, or are there other people on the firm who tend to do that? All the electrolytes and drips and whatever. Uh, well, again, um, two or three things have happened. The first thing that's happened is um, there have been specialised anaesthetists. So mm -hmm. rather than having a cab rank principle, there will be anaesthetists who know our kinds of patients. 
Um, secondly, there's a better understanding of our kinds of patients' recovery. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's been a whole movement in surgery, in general surgery, GI surgery, called enhanced recovery. Mm-hmm. So people don't have tubes down their noses anymore. They're given a drink at, say, 8 o'clock that evening. Uh, they are started on a diet the mm-hmm. next morning. They're told to get up and walk up and down. And we try and reduce the amount of opiate analgesia as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all those things have sped up post-operative recovery. And is this because the anaesthetic's lighter, do you think? As it were, lighter in quotes. Um, yes, and so the use of... Um, there was, a, there was a big, obviously there was a big vogue for epidural, which is slightly going away because of its complications. And the latest vogue is for either spinal uh, ap- yeah. a- anesthesia, one-shot yeah. spinal anesthesia, or so-called tap blocks, which are multiple um, uh, blocks in the uh, abdominal wall for the, for the dermatomes of the area yeah. that you're operating yeah. on. And those things have made a big difference. And I think, obviously, keyhole surgery has made a big difference. They don't have a cut from sternum to pubis they have a very small incision and a few stabs and that's obviously much easier to get over plus uh, along with if you like medical specialization has come nursing specialization so we now have a colorectal ward the nurses all know everything there is to know about colorectal patients Mm -hmm. so they're not jumbling up you know a bit of a head a bit of a neck a bit of a chest and I think that makes a fantastic difference to recovery too yes yeah it must um, now you must have written a lot, published uh, a lot. Um, yes, uh, I've also probably lent quite a lot of my junior colleagues in terms of getting them to do the work and then write, and then I'm kind of edited. Yes. Um, and your name would be on the paper. My name would be on the yeah, paper, right. but never first. Right. No, I no, it was always it was always it was always them. Um, so yes, I mean over three hundred original articles, and mm. um, I've. Uh, written or edited um, about 10 books uh, lots of chapters I mean all that stuff so when do you do that at night or yes um, um, usually or snatches during the day or if I'm on a train or something you Mm -hmm. can do stuff then and I've also one of the nicest jobs I've done professionally as well as all that is I have been chairman of the British Journal of Surgery Society. So the British Journal of Surgery is the uh, top, if you like, European general surgery journal. And it's actually owned by a society, not a national general surgery society, but something called the British Journal of Surgery Society. So it kind of owns itself. Mm -hmm. And I was the chairman of that. We had royalties of uh, half a million a year. And we were able to put that to good use with um, studentships, lectures, training programs, um, travel grants, all kinds of stuff for the promotion of surgery around the world. So it was nice to be involved in something which was obviously the whole business of publishing, the whole business of the interaction between uh, commercial companies like the publishers and medicine, um, and also to be positive rather than you know, sort of cutting costs all the time in a, in a world where we had money and we were able to be generous and encourage people, mm. which is great. And private practice, how did that fit in? Yeah, um, so, for example, I know that Peter Morris, um, formerly Nuffield Professor of Surgery, was very much a guinnet. And in the 50s and 60s, there were a group of... Um, professors of surgery in the UK who largely came from Scottish schools either Edinburgh or Glasgow or their iterations who are also dead again in private practice um, I uh, have had a much more liberal view and obviously in a place like Oxford it's not like working in London or any other big city so it's, it's limited but I've really enjoyed being able to set the pace myself, how many people I see, how long I spend. And I've met some really, really interesting people. And one or two of them have been incredibly generous to the hospital and therefore have, um, you know, have Mm. been to the advantage of of all the patients, not just the private patients. And do you do that in the JR or somewhere else? So 
in terms of consulting, um, there used to be the Ackland Hospital, mm -hmm. uh, which then moved to what was the Manor Football Ground, is now the Nuffield Manor Hospital. Yes. So consulting there, but all our majors we do uh, actually at the Churchill. Mm -hmm. We have yeah. we have bookable private lists, and the big cases done there. And also, again, I help. Uh, the fellows and the junior guys do those cases yes. and they are often very interesting, very challenging, intellectually stimulating because they've come from elsewhere with particular problems and complications mm. and so on. So I think it adds to the general educational yes. wheel. No, I have thought that. Yeah. The administrators, do they favour that? Do they like you to do it? Well, they're the schizophrenic. Yeah, I mean, they like, they like the money yes. that it brings in, <laughs> yes. um, but they're under the cosh. So there's this funny schizophrenia. On the one hand, they say, we think it's fantastic, please bring as many in yeah. as you can. But on the other hand, they're constantly under the cosh in terms of getting the NHS cases done. So the space for the admissions of the private patients is constantly being squeezed and reduced. Mm -hmm. So um, if it's the kind of person who wants the operation done yesterday for either convenience or cosmetic reasons, we are completely unable to provide a service there. Yeah, yeah. If they've got cancer or something serious and they're prepared to kind of go through the process, then mm. we can provide mm. a service to them. And does the new oncology centre at the church affect you? Or are you really separate? Sure. Well, um, I think the first thing to say is that um, GI surgery never wanted to go to the Churchill site but wanted to stay at the John Ratcliffe mm -hmm. to be next to gastroenterology. I always said in discussions with three chief executives with whom it was discussed ad nauseam that it was a bit like putting heart surgery on a different site mm -hmm. from cardiology. However, uh, the practicalities were that in the early 90s we were cancelling about 80% of our patients on the day of surgery, which was sure. nationally one of the highest and completely unacceptable. So David Hyten, when he was chief executive, managed to get a new block built at the Churchill Hospital. And interestingly, this is, re this is really interesting about the relationship between oncology and... So clearly the oncology department at the Churchill site needed a, a rebuild. It was mm -hmm. a disgrace, really. And all that was going to be built was a medical and radiation oncology department. And they had a visiting surgeon who came to discuss being an oncology centre. And he said to them, I don't get this, he said. Surgery cures 60% of patients with solid tumours. Where are your surgical wards? Mm -hmm. And so suddenly, almost as an afterthought... They built some surgical wards, and then the pressure was on for everybody to go there. Um, we work closely with gastroenterology in terms of the management of um, gut problems in patients who've had surgery or are about to have surgery for GI problems. We certainly do discuss at our weekly multidisciplinary team meetings what should happen to the cancer patient with the oncologists, um, but we rarely do joint clinics, they mm -hmm. rarely come to theatre, and in a sense, we don't need to be there really. What's very interesting, however, is that as the money and the, uh, if you like, the clinical application of modern oncology to a wider group of patients has rolled out, we're having patients on the oncology wards who are very sick with GI problems. Mm -hmm. And we are now the people who are sorting that out. So we most often, to be frank, go to the oncology ward, not to discuss how to manage a new cancer or something like that, but to help with somebody who's got a neutropenic diarrhea, who's got a perforation, mm -hmm. or who's got an obstruction, as part of their ongoing mm -hmm. uh, oncology mm -hmm. management. Supposing you have somebody you want to shrink the tumour, you were saying at the yep. age, so you would just sort of send them over to chemotherapy for a bit? Yes, yeah, so we, I mean, one of the things the government did um, in the late 90s was uh, enshrine 
uh, effectively in law the need for all patients with a cancer to be discussed at a multidisciplinary right, team really? meeting. Very good. So no cancer patient okay. can be treated without that and the people who deal with a particular cancer have to have a specialism and again that's driven specialism. So in the old days of general surgery somebody could do a gastric cancer, a thyroid cancer and a colon cancer all on the same list. That's now completely impossible because you'd have to go to all those three meetings, you'd have to know all the ins and outs of the, if you like, the advanced treatments and so on. So there we are. On a Monday morning between 9 and 10.30, we have this enormous list of patients, old and new, some operated, some recurrence and so on. And the discussion goes, this is a new patient with a rectal cancer, it's biopsy positive, ping. The radiologist puts the images of the MRI up, we all sit there and say, yes, that looks as though it's quite near the resection margin. We think this patient, and again, it's agreed by the radiation oncologists, by the imager, and by the surgeons all around the table, and quite a large number of specialist nurses, that the patient should have chemoradiotherapy mm -hmm. to shrink it down first. Mm -hmm. So it's done as a team, but then they disappear into right. oncology yeah. world while they have yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this has been great, but what should I have asked you? What would you like to say that I haven't got you on to? Um, I've had an, an absolutely wonderful time. I mean, I think, I think Oxford is quite tricky when you come in as a newcomer. And I think it really grows on you. I think mm -hmm. it's kind of got depth of interest. There's obviously some fantastic clever, fantastically clever people in town. Um, and if you're lucky enough to work with some of them, to operate on some of them... Um, uh, it's been a fantastic privilege. Mm. You said you'd worked with Bodmer a bit, Walter Bodmer. Yes. What was that about? Or? So um, Walter needed surgeons to help him both get material right. and to um, uh, work on outcomes. So he's very, very interested in the genetics, if you like, of common cancers out with the established cancer syndrome. So he, he as you know, discovered the uh, gene responsible for familial polyposis coronary. Yes. But he's also been interested in uh, a number of other hereditary cancers and also interested in this kind of grey area in the middle where people have a vague family history but it's mm. not terribly strong. What it is that might be causing that. So again, uh, I've had or shared uh, five or six uh, research fellows with him down through the years, both providing material, getting cell cultures going from some of our patients, um, and um, looking at family trees, looking mm. at outcomes and so on. Would your, um, your students, would they do genetic analysis themselves? Yes. Great. Again, things have changed a bit. Mm. Um, there's been a turn away perhaps in the last five or six years from the generality of research fellows doing lab stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some elite guys who are really outstanding who are still doing lab mm -hmm. stuff. But again, the world has become professionalized. So there are now professional scientists who have um, a fantastic amount of backup for writing grants, mm -hmm. write very professionally. And it's extremely difficult for, if you like, casual surgeons mm -hmm. to compete in that process. Yeah. So they tend to be, um, you know, helpers in the big game. They've got to team up with them. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the business that every cancer has about five different genetic sets within it, you know, yeah. or every cell is different, will that get us anywhere, do you think? Well, the big idea mm -hmm. is... Um, it's quite interesting. There are parallels between inflammatory bowel disease management and cancer management. The big new drugs on the block are what are called the biologics. These are the uh, therapeutic antibodies. And in um, IBD, these are two um, inflammatory uh, uh, mediators. And in cancer, they're two things that help cancer cells make new blood vessels and so on, in very, very general mm. terms. They are incredibly expensive. Right. And what we want to know before we start is, will this patient be a responder or not? So it's beginning to help 
uh, and the big sort of buzzword is personalised mm-hmm. cancer and IBD management. So mm-hmm. you don't spend thousands and thousands of pounds on a patient who isn't going to respond. Yeah. Yeah. It's slowly getting there. I think it's it's happening much slower than everybody anticipated. <laughs> I mean, does. I think yeah. I think some famous professors of medicine yeah. here would have said it. You know, would have happened ten years yeah, ago, yeah. but I think it's still twenty yeah. years. Away. It was the same with transplants. It was always yeah. a bit longer, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, now, last question, and don't just answer yes or no, not with a name. Do you know who your successor is? No. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Neil, very much. That's been terrific.